Well, this morning we begin a new series. Uh, we had an extended series in the, in the last book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, which was written um, later than any other New Testament book. Uh, most people think it was written in the 90s. And as we think about that, uh, we, we're doing the exact contrast of that. We're now going to be looking at the book that most people think was the first book written in the New Testament, the book of James. Uh, sometimes we look chronologically and we think, well, Matthew must have been the first book written because it's the first in the New Testament. Well, it tells us about the first things that happened in the life of Christ, but it wasn't necessarily the first one recorded. But this book, uh, James, is. And so if you'll take your Bibles and turn to the, the James in the New Testament toward the end of uh, the series of books in our uh, New Testament, we'll get to that section we're going to be looking at this morning, though I, I believe all the text is in your outline um, as we gather together. Uh, James. James is an amazing book. Um, in some ways, it's, it's a very debated book because of its emphasis. Uh, it, it has a, a push to be that which we've entitled the entire series to be. It's, it's, a, it's a book that emphasizes that if we have faith, we need to live it out. And so I've entitled this series, Living Out Our Faith. And that can be not only individually, but it needs to be true collectively. We are to take that which we believe and individually and collectively show that we really believe it. Uh, this morning I've entitled the message, Getting Better or Bitter, and we'll obviously see that as we look at the beginning words of, of James' message to us. But as we think about it this morning, uh, we need to ask some very basic questions. Who, who wrote the book? Who's he writing it to? And, and what's his main idea or point? And we've kind of alluded to that already. Uh, this, uh, this begins at the beginning, if you have... Your outline or your Bible, uh, we'll look at the very first verse as we begin. James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Now, unlike our letters, when we normally write a letter, we sign our name at the end or the beginning? At the end. And so you have to, if it's not on the, on the envelope, you, if you want to figure out who's writing you this, this letter, if you can't analyze their handwriting or printing or whatever it might be, you, uh, you go to the bottom of the page to figure out who, who actually is writing these words to you. But in the New Testament era, they would write it at the very beginning. And so he identifies himself very plainly, James. James, uh, a bondservant of God. Now, as we think about that, the answer to the question, who wrote this book, is pretty obvious. It's James. But you then you need to ask yourself the question, well, which James? Uh, most of us have names that we can think of people that have the same identical first name that we have. So which, which James are we talking about? And in the New Testament, there are a number of James. Some count as many as five. Some say it's four. James, the son of Zebedee. James, the son of Alphaeus. James, the, the less. Some say there's a James that is the father of Judas. And then there's the James, the, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. And you're thinking, wow, who, who actually wrote this? Well, most scholars say it's the half-brother of Jesus. But what's remarkable about, remarkable, remarkable about that is how he introduces himself. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a setting where someone introduced you, maybe because you were new to the group, or maybe you had to make a presentation, and and either they gave you a very simple introduction or a long introduction. But I think we've all been in places where people do get introduced, and sometimes they're fairly lengthy, aren't they? They might, particularly if they're trying to impress people, they might, they might throw out all their degrees. Every place they went to school, 
their final degree. If they did really well, they'll say how well they did in terms of you know, where they, did they graduate with honors, were they cum laude, magna cum laude, summa cum laude, whatever it might be. Uh, and and they, would, they try to impress people by their education. Some of them might try to impress people by what they actually did for a living or what position they have as far as what they did. And as you think about James, the half-brother of Jesus, you could, you could say, well, he could have done that because as he's writing, he wants people to, to read what he's writing and be convinced of it. And sometimes if you pour out your degrees, people will be more impressed. Sometimes they're not. And sometimes you pour out or speak about your position, people will be impressed. And you think, well, what could James say about himself? Well, he could have said the obvious, hey, I've known Jesus longer than anybody else. You ought to listen to me, right? He could have said that. You know, I, I grew up with him. We had the same um, uh, birth mother, Mary. Um, you know, I wasn't virgin birth, but I, I, I looked up to my older brother. I saw him all the time. It took me a while to kind of figure out who he is, but I, I, I saw him more than anybody else, but he doesn't say that. He also could have said, uh, well, now my position is pretty impressive because I'm now kind of the leader of, of all the churches. In Acts chapter 15, when the council got together, as the, as the message went from uh, the, the Jewish culture to all the cultures in the world, the Gentile culture, they were trying to figure out, how are we supposed to, to put this faith that began from the beginning, and as God gave revelation of himself to Abraham and, and had his chosen people, how, how, are, we, how are we supposed to, to mirror the, the two together? And so James led that. So he could say, I'm really in charge of everybody else. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? I mean, they didn't put Peter at the charge, uh, in charge of the Acts Council in chapter 15, but he doesn't say that. And they said, well, what else could he have said? Well, this is pretty significant. Uh, we're going to be celebrating Easter pretty soon, right? And I think all of us at times have thought about, well, if I could live at any other time than the time I live now, when would I have loved to have lived, you know? And depending upon what you're interested in, you, you might pick a particular period of time in all of history. But if you're thinking spiritually or religiously, you'd probably say, I'd like to be around when who was here? Jesus. And if I really wanted to be at a particular place, I, I'd like to be when Jesus, after he rose from the dead, I'd like to have been there when he appeared to somebody. Wouldn't that be pretty convincing? I guess what I believe in is really true because I saw Jesus back from the dead. Well, James, who really didn't believe when he was young in life, it's pretty hard to, to believe everything. I mean, he, I'm sure he was amazed by Jesus throughout his life, but he didn't put his faith in Jesus until when everybody else put his faith in Jesus at the point of resurrection. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, I have this of first importance. Now, whenever someone is lecturing or preaching or teaching or even writing, and they say, this is of first importance... You know about what comes next. It's going to be on the test, right? You better get this one down because I'm going to test you on it. And he said, I am, 1 Corinthians 15, I have delivered to you this of first importance that, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was dead and he was buried and he rose from the dead. And then he appeared to Cephas, which is the Aramaic translation of Peter. Then he appeared to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 and you're thinking, that's convincing. If that many people saw him from the dead, that, that's a lot of witnesses, right? Most of us stop right there, but it doesn't, in the text, or at least the theme in 1 Corinthians 15, doesn't stop there. Then it goes on and says, then he appeared to James. 
So as he writes this letter, he could have said any of those things. I'm the half-brother of Jesus. I've known him longer than anybody else. He could have said, I am the leader of all the other churches, the council of churches. When they come, I lead the, that meeting. He could have said, um, I personally got to meet with Jesus after, the, after he rose from the dead. I'm singled out as someone he appeared to. But he does none of that. What he says very simply, he says, James, a bond servant of God. And really, if we were to translate that, and maybe some of your translations, he said, you could simply say, James, a slave of God or a servant of God. That's all he wanted them to know. I don't want you to be impressed with my credentials or, or my, my, my family background. I don't want you to know about my position. I simply want you to know that I am a servant of God. And, and really, that's how God describes many of the people who really live for him. Whether it was Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or it was David or it was Isaiah, the people in the Old Testament, they were simply slaves of God. What's interesting about him designating himself as a slave of God is that Jesus in John 15 says of those who are following him, he said, you are are known as the servants of God or servants of mine, but I now call you my friends. But, you know, sometimes, you know, just for us to think about how we see ourselves, it's one thing for someone else to present us in an elevated position, and it's another thing for us to say the same thing about ourselves. I mean, he could have said, I'm the brother of Jesus. I'm the, I'm the friend of Jesus. And, and that's all right if Jesus says that. But he says, I want you to know from my perspective, I am simply a slave of God. For those of you who have been here for any length of time, you know, I've kidded you sometimes. You know, you can, you, can, you can really call me anything you want. People say, well, should I call you Pastor Mike? Should I just call you Mike? And I would, I would go simply by Mike, but sometimes if I'm on the phone, there's a lot of Mikes in this world. And they go, Mike who? And then I'm, oh, I'm pa- Pastor Mike. Oh, okay, Pastor Mike. So, but I say, you can call me anything you want. If you take what the Bible says about people like me, uh, particularly in the book of Revelation, one of the things you could call me, you could call me an angel, you know, Angel Mike. Because when, when Jesus was uh, talking about ministering to the seven churches in Asia Minor, he, it says that he, he spoke to the messengers, the angels, literally the angels to the churches. And actually he described there earlier, you could also call me this, you could call me a star because he said the stars were in his right hands and those were the, the angels that he was speaking to. But if you really took it literally, you could say I'm simply a messenger boy because that's what an angel is, a messenger. You could also call me, as I said before, and of course you can call each other this. You can call me Saint Mike as well because I'm a saint. I'm, every Christian is a saint. But, but really, the, the, I guess the, the greatest description, if you could call it anybody, is that that person simply serves God. He, he does what God wants him or her to do. And, and I like that about the beginning of this book. As, as we read what God wants to say to us, and if we take historians correctly, that the first recorded book in the New Testament, which, which speaks powerfully into the lives of those new believers, it, the, the writer, that the one who had the privilege of writing the first recorded part of the New Testament, simply was identified as one who serves God. He was chosen to serve God. That's who wrote this book. Well, who is he writing to? Again, the very first verse, James, a bondservant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ 
to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. So James, who was Jewish, was writing in many ways, if you're being being very concrete here, a, a largely Jewish crowd. The 12 tribes speak about the tribes that are identified as the covenant people of God that were chosen by God. You had the 10 tribes and the two tribes that split off from the Judah area, and you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. But they were always known as the, the, the group that were chosen ethnically by God. And he says they're dispersed. And, and many times God dispersed God's people, the Old Testament, out of discipline. But they weren't dispersed in James' day because of discipline. They were dispersed because they were about to be a part of God's mission. If you remember the book of Acts, God did a miraculous work, and many, many people came to know Christ as the, at the preaching of the gospel. Thousands came to know Christ. But what happened is they, they all stayed locally. They, 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 didn't, they didn't do what God wanted them to do. And does that sound like us sometimes? You know, we, we sometimes huddle, and we don't get out of our huddle. We don't, we don't play the next play. And, and so God persecuted them to the point where they, they had to leave Jerusalem, and then the gospel went everywhere. Some, as they look at this text, are saying, we don't need to look at this simply as a book particularly written to ethnic Israel that were believers, but really this describes all believers as we scatter. In fact, to be dispersed means you once had to be together. And in one way, every time we come together on a Sunday, we we disperse afterwards, don't we? We go to our own homes, our own places of employment, our own places where we take classes called schools, our own experiences with other people. And as we're dispersed, then we're to do what God wants us to do. So James, which is known as probably the most practical book in the New Testament, it's kind of the, some people call it the Proverbs of the New Testament. James, who simply says, I, I, I just serve God, and I'm writing to those who have been dispersed to serve God, I've got something to say to you. And what is it he wants to say? And we're going to see this throughout the book. But I would simply put, what is he writing about? He's writing about faith, trusting God. And he's talking about trusting God to the point where it, it is real and it's genuine. It's true rather than being false. You could put it this way. Faith is the root of salvation. And then he speaks in this book about works. Works are going to be the fruit of salvation. He wants a faith that can be demonstrated by our actions and what it produces. The faith is the cause of salvation. Works are going to be the result of it. Faith that saves is a faith that shows. And if you're not convinced that this is kind of the major theme of this book, and we'll see it so practical throughout the book, uh, James 1.22 says this, But prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. You know, there, there's some rather challenging things in, in this book, God's Word, and in, in any book you read. But one of the things you find out about, about Jesus, there would be oftentimes where people would come being convinced of, the, of him because of the miracles he performed, and they would follow him. And in fact, it even uses the word they would put their faith in him. But it said, he did not entrust himself to them because he knew their hearts. And as some have said that, we need to be careful that we put our confidence in our relationship with God because simply sometime in the past we made a nod to God, which is simply say, well, yeah, I, I said a prayer uh, and that means I'm in. And it really wasn't a heart prayer. It wasn't a commitment. 
And so James writes to them as he writes to us, I want your faith to be genuine. I want it to be real. A faith that says is a faith that shows. Now, now this is not to put fear in the, in the heart of a, of a true believer, but it's saying, that I want you to understand that it's got to be real. And for us who have faith in Christ, it's saying, how can I more powerfully and pointedly demonstrate my faith? And then he begins with probably the most familiar or some of the most familiar words in all of his, his book in the very beginning of his book. You know, sometimes we, we save the best for what? Last. He kind of saves, I don't know if he's saving, he, he, he begins with almost the best at the very beginning. And he gets very practical. He doesn't get religious per se. He, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak about where you all live. And you can demonstrate your faith in this way as he begins the words of life for those who have experienced life in Christ. And he speaks about those things in our life that we wish we didn't have in our life. Can any of you think of something that happened this last year that you wish hadn't happened? Anybody? Am I the only one? Is there anything that happened this past year you would just as soon didn't happen? Well, that's what he's saying here. He says, I, I, I want to talk to you about the things in your life that you wish hadn't happened. Or even if you project the future, do any of you think that there are going to be some things in your future that you wish didn't happen? Okay. And he's saying, okay, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about how your faith should react to things that have happened, are happening, or will happen. And I want to say this right off the top. I want those things that come in your life that you don't want to come in your life, I want those the things to make you better rather than bitter. And that's the message that I want to emphasize this morning. We're just going to look at three verses this morning that talk about getting better uh, rather than bitter. And again, just to put it very plainly, if, if, I'm not, if I'm speaking around it, God's plan to make us better is through trials. Those things that we wish God would not have in our lives, they're there for a purpose, and it's to make us better. What is it we should know about trials? Uh, we're going to look at it this morning. But let me just stop just for a moment. Last week, we talked about that God's plan for His church and for individuals is that, that we should honor God. That, that's, we are to live to God's glory. We are to live to, for, in such a way that people can see Jesus in us. And the challenge is to do that in such a way that we understand that we are to honor God. And the best way we can honor God is by helping more people get in on what we've gotten in, become fully devoted followers of Christ. But, but how we are to do that is to understand he wants us to honor him in every way, in every place, and in every moment. But I talked at the beginning of that message last Sunday is that um, sometimes we aren't that motivated. We, we, we don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, I really want to live for Christ in such a way that... Everybody sees Jesus in there. We're just tired or we're just beat up or whatever it might be. Or we're just we're wondering, where, when is God going to show up and make this life better rather than, than all the struggles I'm going through? And I talked talk to you that, that really, as you think about the motivation for life, is to remember what God has done. And we did that with the, the, the communion table this morning. But remember, if you weren't here, I'm just going to give you a real quick synopsis of what, what should constantly motivate us when we're not motivated and I'll just throw this in for free, is that the only time you need to be motivated is when you're not motivated, right? 
So there, there are times we wake up, we're not very motivated. Well, I need to get motivated. Well, what's going to motivate you? Well, spiritually, it's to remember what, what God has done, is doing, and will do. And I, and I mentioned to you that one of the things that says right in the beginning is Paul challenges the church in Colossae. And we're going to look at how God challenges the, the readers of, of James. He says, remember this, that you are chosen, beloved, and holy. Now, those are kind of religious terms, but what does it mean that you're beloved? It means simply this, God loves you. God loves you so deeply. He knows everything about you, and he still loves you. When you, when you know someone really deeply loves you, you will almost do anything for them because you're just so overwhelmed because of their love for you. You want to somehow give it back. And he says, I want you to know you are beloved by God. And then he says, you are holy. And he's not talking just about purity. He says, I have chosen you amongst all the, the people on this, on this planet, and, and I've set you apart. You are special. And when you're around people who make you feel special, in fact, they're convinced you are special, then you want to act special, don't you? I want to live up to who I am. I'm, I'm special. I'm holy in God's eyes. And, and then the very first thing, you are chosen. You're, you're chosen by God. In the midst of, of every, every person who ever lived on this planet, he, he selected you to be part of his family, his forever family. And I talked to some people afterwards and said, you know, I, all my life, I was always chosen last or not chosen at all. And, and they look back on their child, and that part of their experience growing up it, it, is an is a experience of despair and disappointment because that was their experience. I either was chosen last or I wasn't chosen at all. And, and the good news, what the Bible says you were chosen in the very beginning. You can even say all of us were chosen first because we were chosen before the foundations of the world. It wasn't, it was, it's not like, okay, okay I got, I, I'm going to let one more in. Who out there am I going to let in? No, at, from the very beginning, God chose you. But, I, but I, I, again, I want to be really honest with you, however. Even knowing that, which should be motivating. I mean, no, we're chosen by God. We're loved by God. We're special in God's eyes. But even then, sometimes when life happens, and have you experienced life happens? You know, life doesn't always happen like you want it to happen. It happens. I was thinking of all the things I told you last week about happening in that like three or four month period of time. I forgot to tell you that I had a gas leak too, <laughs> but that's another story. But anyway, so you know, things happen, and sometimes they happen repeatedly, and you're wondering, well, God, what's going on here? My my favorite, my favorite musical, which was also a movie, is Fiddle on the Roof. If you've ever seen the movie or the the theatrical play of that, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a great story. When he's like, it's a great story as well as great music and has a lot of things. I'm not saying it's the best. I just like it the best, all right? And part of the reason I like it is the interchange between the main character and God. I mean, he's praying to him, talking to him about, you know, being really honest with God. And, you know, I don't know what part of the movie, what part of the play it is. All of a sudden he starts talking to God and he's just gone through all kinds of challenges and trials and things going wrong that he wanted to go right. And he, and he goes up to God and he says, God, I know we're your chosen people. But sometimes couldn't you choose somebody else? <laughs> you know? Because we need to understand that not only does life happen to everybody, but as Christians, there are things that are going to be added to that that's going to make, at times, life even harder than it would be if you didn't have Christ. In terms of, 
if you take a stand for Christ, there's going to be a pushback. There's going to be a rejection, either directly or indirectly. And as, as being a, a, a Jew in Russia at a particular period of time, they were being dispersed, not by their own free will, but because of Russia wanted them out of the area. So as we, as we think about the things we have happen in our life, and we realize we're chosen, we're beloved, and that we are special, we're holy, that because of that, sometimes we have added things happen to our life that he wants us to respond in such a way that will make us better rather than bitter. Well, how are we to do that? Well, let's look at it this morning quickly because I took too long in our introduction. All right. What should you know about trials? Let me read the passage and then make some very simple observations. Right after he introduces himself and talks about who he's speaking to, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Again, this, this is one of the gems of this book. Even you take the last three words in James verse 1, verse 4. How many of you would like to be lacking in nothing? I mean, that, that's, that's pretty all-inclusive. And if you did, that's kind of said in the negative. If you want in the positive, how many want to be perfect? How many want to be complete? This is an amazing statement here as he begins this book speaking, I want you to live out your faith. And here are the benefits of living out your faith. You're going to be lacking in nothing. You're going to be perfect and you're complete. Now, some of you who are familiar with this passage, you, you've, you've heard it said that uh, if you're going to get patient, you're going to have to have what? Trials. And you say, that's the one attribute in the Christian life I'm not going to ever pray for anymore. God, I don't want to be patient because I know if, I, if you produce more patience in my life, I'm going to have more trials. I'd rather be impatient, right? <laughs> But that's not the only character quality God wants to produce in your life when you have trials. It's, it's more than just patience. It's producing in your life that which is complete. But let's see what the Bible says just in that section about trials. Number one, you cannot avoid trials. Consider it all joy, my brethren. And what's the next word there? When. Right? When. It, it doesn't say if, if you have trials. When you have trials. So let's just be honest. If you've had a season in life where you haven't had too many trials, just wait. Okay, they're coming. Okay, and so that's that's just a that's just being brutally honest with yourself. Okay, you're not going to be able to avoid all trials. Now, there there is a certain type of trial God does not want you to experience, and that you could avoid. There are trials that you're going to meet, and there are going to be trials that you're going to make. Okay, don't get the trials you can make based on your own foolish decisions. But not every trial you are in is your fault. It's not because you've done something wrong. It's not because God is, is mad at you. It's simply that God allows things in your life for a purpose. So just be honest with yourself. You cannot avoid all trials. Some people, they, they, what they want in their Christian life is kind of have this big bubble you know, surround them and, and just prevent everything that's difficult from happening. And God says that will not happen. You're going to have trials when you encounter various trials. So if you're writing your Bibles, you could circle the word when. Secondly, 
There are all kinds of trials. Again, right in the text, he says, Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, right? Trials come in all shapes and sizes. There are big ones and there are little ones. You know, a big one is like Allegra and her family are experiencing now. They thought that their, their um, daughter and their sister was healed of cancer. She's in our small group on Tuesday nights, and we were praising God for answered prayer. Now, two weeks later, the story back is, no, it doesn't look like she's going to survive the cancer that they thought they had gotten all out of her system. That's a big trial. But you don't need to look at your life and say, well, I don't have that big trial. Uh, some trials are just, they're just one after another, right? I think we've all had that experience where we, we get frustrated and, we're, and, and maybe we respond emotionally and we kick the dog or anything else that's close to us when something, you know, one more thing happens. It's because it's that last straw, right? So some, some, some of us have much more difficulty with the, the multitude of trials than we do with the big trials because it, it, just, it just wears on us. And he says, I want you to understand that, that you're going to encounter various trials. A neat point. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, it says, you know, be good stewards of the manifold, uh, be good stewards of God and, and use your gift to serve God. And then it said, and experience the manifold grace of God. The word for manifold there is the same word here, various. The word various means all shapes and sizes and shades and colors. Kind of a rainbow thing. There's a rainbow of trials. There's also a rainbow of God's grace. And God will match his grace with your trials because God is sufficient. What to know about trials? You can't avoid them, and there are all kinds of them. Thirdly, trials will come when you're not expecting them. Not expecting them. And where do we get that? He says, Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter, when you encounter various trials. We've, I, most of you have heard of Murphy's Law, you know, the, the worst possible thing is going to happen at the worst possible time. No one, unless, well, no one tries to make bad things happen in their life. In fact, we try to do everything we can to prevent bad things happening in our life. But let's be honest, you cannot prevent everything. Again, it's kind of like the first point from happening in your life. Uh, two biblical stories in this. In Acts chapter 27, Paul is he's, uh, on the ship. You know, he's kind of being escorted because he's basically in jail or going to go to a hearing. And um, the ship encounters a reef. Now, if you're a, an experienced captain, you're not looking to get hit by a reef, right? But there are certain things hidden underneath the ocean floor that you're not going to know it's there. And they hit it. Same word that encounter here. In, G in Luke chapter 10, when uh, Jesus is telling the story of the Good Samaritan, remember that story? Shake your head like you're still listening to me. All right? Okay, the Good Samaritan story, and, and, it, and, and Jesus is trying to teach them what a, what a true neighbor is. And, and he said, well, there's, there's this man who went out, and he, he it was traveling from, you know, from Jericho, and he encountered or fell into robbers. That's the same word, again, used here. Now, when you go on a trip, you probably ask people to pray for you for what kind of travel? Safety. Safe travel. None of you ask people, I want you to pray that I have unsafe travel, right? Whether it's on a ship or a plane or a car. But sometimes unsafe things happen in your travel, right? 
None of you are saying, when I, make, uh, when I go from point A to point B, I hope I, find into, I run into some people who are going to try to take things from me. And, and yet they happen. And, and so we need to understand that trials are going to come at unexpected times. And all this is to say, don't be surprised when this happens because that's part of God's plan. And we sometimes fight God's plan. God has allowed those things to happen. Fourthly, Trials are given to test you, and that's right out of the text as well. It says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces something. So God is doing this because it's on the test. You know, if you never take a test in a class, you're going to probably, what with the the class? You're going to fail it, right? And and none of us want to fail in the Christian life, do we? And so we need to realize if you're not going to fail in the Christian life, you've got to be willing to take the test. You don't take the test, you can't pass class. And so God wants you to know there's going to be some tests in this class of walking with Christ, and some of those are trials. And why did God give trials? He, he a teacher is a good teacher. When, you give, when they give you a test, I'll be careful. I'm, I could make this a long message really easily. Okay. When, when you get a test, when you have a good teacher, how successful does he want his students to be on the test? He wants them to be really successful, Right? He doesn't want you to fail because that kind of, ref- if he's really being honest with himself, that reflects on the teacher. You know, if I'm trying to teach a subject and the people aren't getting it, I'm thinking, what's wrong with me? I can't get them to get it, right? And so God doesn't want you to fail the test. He wants you to pass the test. And the pass the test is he, want you to sh- he wants you to show that your faith is genuine. He wants you to, to show to people, hey, Life isn't easy, and I still love Jesus. Life isn't easy, I still believe in Jesus. Life isn't easy, I want to show that Jesus is in my life. He wants our faith to be shown as genuine. And then secondly, he wants us to grow. You, know, you, you can't grow in life without, without facing resistance. You know, on the physical level, you're not going to grow stronger unless you're, you're putting stress on your muscles, right? It doesn't happen. You've got to put stress on your muscles. You can't... You can't be able to run longer unless you do ha- run longer. I don't have time to tell the, the story I told in the uh, first service, so we have some cross-country runners here, is that, you know, I had two, well, I'm going to tell you an abbreviated. Okay, I had two kids w- w- run cross-country. One ran only for basketball, and his, co- his coach was a basketball coach, and so they only ran three miles a day. They never ran longer than three miles a day. Then I come to Orange County, and my son runs cross-country, and the coaches have him run 10 to 12 miles a day. Well, what was the difference? Well, one cared less about continuing, and the other wanted to grow stronger, right? And that's the only way you grow is by extending yourself. And that really is what the fifth point is. Trials develop endurance. And not only this, but also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. God wants us to continue on on the long haul. At times we'll fail, but he wants us to keep on keeping on because that's what shows that we're really followers of his. So don't, don't jump out of the race. Keep in the race. And the only way that happens is, is to get stronger by, by, by training through other trials, which will be making you ready for other trials that will to come. And that's what he says. And let faith have its perfect, uh, and let your faith produce endurance. And then verse 4. And endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. And that's the sixth point. Trials produce character. And James says that. I mean, Paul says that in Romans. And perseverance leads to proven character. 
He wants all of our lives to put on the reflection of who God is. And that only happens when we get tested by things that go wrong and that will depend upon him. And let me just throw this in for free. When do you have a tendency to pray more? When things are going right or when things are going wrong? When things are going wrong, right? And, and there, if there's any part of my, well, there's a lot of parts of my Christian life that I, was, I, I wish I was so much further along than I am or that I had, I, I just did more of. And, and the area that I always wish I could do more of would be to pray. But every time I go through trial, it brings me to prayer. And so if God didn't do this, I'd be worse at praying than I am now. And praying is not just a religious ritual. It is an expression of dependence upon God. Well, when you need to depend upon God, when something's going wrong rather than something's right. Now, there is, a, there is a challenge when things are going right as well, but, I mean, the issue is that we need to depend upon God. And then seventhly, real quickly, um, becoming better, not bitter, through trials is a choice. It's a choice. And that's why he began that whole statement, considered it all joy. You've got to make a choice that I, at the front end that as I go through this, God has a purpose for it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at the outcome, and because of that, I will experience joy. You know, athletes do that all the time. The reason they go through training is so that they can celebrate a victory. But even more so, I think more graphically is, you know, the, every mother of every child that ever, ever brought a child into, into, into this earth. You know, it's not, it's not a pleasant experience, you know, laboring for nine months and carrying extra weight around for nine months. And then, it, then that trial heightens when the, the, baby, the child is birthed, right? And you're going through all that pain. Why would you go through all that pain? Because of the product of that pain is a new life that you can love and cherish. And really, that's why Jesus went to the cross, Hebrews 12, 2. Jesus endured the cross because of the joy set before him. So this morning, I, I just simply asked the question, how's your faith this morning? As you look back in your past, or as you're looking at your present, or if you're looking in the future, and you realize that trials are part of God's plan, uh, are you going to choose to live out your faith by saying, God, I want to see the joy in what I'm going through? Not that I think what I'm going through is pleasant, but I want to see the product of that. The product is I'm going to be much more enduring in my faith. My character is going to be developed. My display of who Christ is will be much more clear because my faith has been tested and seen genuine and growing. That's, That's God's plan for us to live out our faith. Let's pray together. Father, we just really pray as, as we begin this series, as we think about your plan, and as we, as we live today and tomorrow and whatever days you give us uh, to live, that, that we want to face life, and life does happen. But as life happens, might we be filled with the desire to show that our faith in the living Christ is worth it, and it works. And Father, be there anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, might they realize that this is the hope of life. That everything that happens in life is not an accident, but it has a purpose. And that purpose is to draw us into relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. And if there's someone here that doesn't know you, might they just humble themselves to the place where they say, God, I want you to forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. 
lead my life. I want to follow you fully. Help us all to desire to, to live for you this day and this week. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand this morning as we sing.